0: Case file number 4.1. The Weird Wide Web, Part 1. Observed by Agent Grenshaw. Subject 1, alias Hackalope. Subject has a history of working in computer security for over 20 years. He has been observed to several Fortune 500 companies and federal agencies during that period. He has been amassing historical information related to espionage and covert action as well as corporate malfeasance. Subject 2, alias Emir. Subject has a history of working in computer security for the last 10 years. He has been observed at NASA facilities regularly. We've also tracked him to the gym where he seems to be bodybuilding. We are amassing evidence to charge him with felony for skipping leg day and curls on the squat rack. Subjects are suspected of having information related to hacking the Gibson.
1: Uh, the accounting subdirector of the Gibson's working really hard. I think we got a hacker. Hacker. Yeah.
2: Do you know what uh, Steve Jobs did when he got fired from, I mean, excuse me, left Apple in
1: 1985? 1985? Yeah. He's, he's sit down and start uh, designing the iPod?
2: No, no. That would actually come when he came back to Apple. Oh, okay. When he left Apple, he started a company called Next Computing and it was inspired by a conversation that he had with Nobel laureate Paul Berg, who wanted Jobs to create what he called a 3M computer. Which was okay. kind of a stretch goal at the time. It was a workstation with one megabyte of RAM, one megapixel display, and one megaflop of CPU performance. Mm, okay. So I just looked this up, and in order to get one gigaflop of performance in about 1984-1985, would have cost mm. you about forty-six million dollars in, in adjusted 2020 dollars.
1: Okay. Damn. Okay.
2: Now. Ten years later, 1995, which you could go to the electronic store and buy off the shelf for between two and three grand, maybe mm-hmm. a little bit more, you could get a megapixel computer if you got an upgraded video card and a better monitor than what normally came with that stuff. Otherwise, you were okay. about three quarters of a megapixel,
3: uh-huh.
2: but you'd have about 16 megs of RAM, typical just off the shelf, expandable, mm-hmm. but that's where you were at, and you were about 100 megaflops, maybe a little bit shy. Okay, so about a hundred times the performance, and yeah, yeah. the price per gigaflop had gone down from forty six million to about forty eight thousand in t- adjusted twenty twenty dollars.
1: Right. Yeah.
2: And at about twenty fifteen or so, a gigaflop of performance was available for under a dime in adjusted twenty twenty dollars. Mm. It was kind of Moore's law yeah. <laughs> in terms of practical what it actually cost. So they started Next Computing, which was actually backboned off of a Unix thing. And they made a higher education-focused Unix-like, Unix-esque operating system. And uh, in 1990, Tim Berners-Lee's, along with his collaborators, Ari Lauten and Heinrich Nielsen, demonstrated the first web server, the CERN web server and web browser that that started- CERN-CERN? Yeah, CERN-CERN, in fact, oh, okay. yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Not just high-energy physics anymore. So they used a Next workstation in order, workstations to develop the, the very first web servers that started it all. Oh, damn. Okay. Next didn't end up actually being a, a big commercial success. It merged with Apple in 1996, which was basically they bought it out, but they called it something nice. But they kept Jobs on, and Jobs worked his way back to being CEO of Apple, which is where we, where he got the ability to start them designing, building, and and selling iPods.
1: So weird tangent. Just because I listened to a Behind the Bastards episode on Jeff Bezos, that covered <laughs> this. So I did not realize that at the time, both Jobs and Bezos were competing for like music delivery in yeah. some format. And the reason Jobs kind of won out is that Bezos doesn't really understand music and does not like music at all.
2: I always knew he was a freaking android.
1: <laughs> yeah, he uh, he apparently uh, memorized radio station call numbers to demonstrate to people that he w- he was into music.
2: He's and made an enormous success, even if you discount the fact that for a very long time he's been paying a lot less in taxes than probably he should have. But yeah. big commercial success but let's be honest his business model was like the Sears catalog from the 21st century and that's what he did until he started building AWS so it at least was a business model that worked but to put a cap on the whole next step thing the next step operating system was the starting point some of the code maybe probably but a lot of the ideas from the operating system came mm-hmm. from next step uh in fact it's been said that it was the Biggest reverse takeover there ever was because 10 years later, Apple have a bunch of Next people in a lot of really important positions. And all of the mm-hmm. technology that Next developed became the foundation of so much that Apple did from then on.
1: Interesting. Were they also like behind Apple Script and stuff like that? Or
2: Very likely. Okay. If they had not acquired Next, we would not have OS X. Anything's possible. Everything's counterfactual, but but probably not. At least not, in my opinion. Um, such
1: a such a shame that some of my missions would not use Macs and could actually be using Linux instead.
2: <laughs> okay, so let's let's actually start out telling a little bit of the history of HTTP and the World Wide Web. A tale of two hackers. A tale of two hackers, both alike in dignity, in fair or banished champagne, where we set our scene. From an emerging protocol, we break new ground where files serve need hands receive. From forth the Unix loins, these two code a pair of star applications take their flight. A worldwide web of okay, enough of the of the Shakespeare parody and (laughs) apologies. Apologies to anybody with a classic education, but the first real web browser and the first real web server, the ones that really started everything, both started in the National Center for Supercomputing Applications in the University of Illinois, Urbana-Champaign. I keep wanting to say Champlain, but I know Mm. that's wrong. So the one on the server side was a guy named Robert McCool. And the one on the the browser side is a guy you might have heard of named Mark Anderson.
1: Um, The less impressive.
2: Well, definitely less, you know fly (laughs) (laughs) so the ncsa web server wasn't the first web server but it was released not long after the first one and in 1993 was basically the web server everybody used if you were running Hmm. a web server chances were very good you were running the ncsa web server and then right about the same time mosaic 1.0 was released from the ncsa which was the predecessor to Netscape Navigator and was the first graphic web browser.
1: Man, I remember Netscape.
2: Yeah, well, this is before, this is even before Netscape. This was like, the big thing was that they would display pictures in line with the text rather than having it as a separate click. Yeah, (laughs) you can download and use Mosaic now as kind of a Mm -hmm. play around thing, but there's a lot of like static linked stuff. That yeah. were content pieces for it. A lot of the the menu systems and stuff were actually links to the web server. Oh damn! The, the web server at the at the NCSA. So it's a little interesting because we really got away from that in the early um, internet. We got away from that whole like online function, like the functionality requiring an online connection to a specific mm-hmm. places. But we've come to the world where the complexity of the current Web services almost makes that require. There's some pretty interesting mm. stories of what happens when mm. some libraries are no longer available, or or some incorporated scripts and stuff aren't available. Oh yeah, yeah. There, so there's like JavaScript libraries where you say include a JavaScript mm-hmm. toolkit from another site, and if the user can't get to that other site, well,
1: <laughs> <laughs> interesting. Okay,
2: I don't have this in front of me because I didn't mean to really talk about it, but there is a case where a guy was maintaining a library just a i don't even remember what it did it was just a kind of a little thing mm-hmm. that they was just hosting he it was open source software and at one point he just took it down and broke the web for like a day
1: that's amazing
2: yeah. You just I'm, like
1: throw it behind a paywall and be like, ha come come at me now. Yeah, come at me, bro. Oh. That's actually um, another tangent in World of Warcraft. One of the mm. add-ons, can't remember exactly the acronym for it, but it was used for um, plotting out runs through mythic dungeons. Mm-hmm. And at one point, the guy behind it was like, I am going to require you to pay for this now. Like starting like next week, you have to pay for it. And like everyone, everyone used it. So someone mm-hmm. basically just forked his code because it was open source and was like, well, my version, you don't have to pay for
2: well, I've used some tools that did fork because the guy stopped maintaining it or actually mm-hmm. in one case, the developer, I played Path of Exile and the developer for one of the really important tools got hired by the company and he just didn't have as much time to to stay up on it. So there was a community mm-hmm. fork. Yeah. So that'll teach you never make your code open source. Exactly. <laughs> no, make your code open source. It's, really open
1: <laughs> it's, it's, very, it's very important.
2: <laughs> anyway, so the Mosaic browser did support Protocols other than HTTP, Network News Protocol, Usenet was most of what the internet was at the time, and the other part of of, of what the internet was was Gopher, which was a okay. it was a little bit similar to HTTP in that kind of a anonymously grabbed files uh-huh. kind of protocol. Like FTP required an authentication and session before you could start grabbing files, and even if it was anonymous anonymity. In FTP was an add-on, kind of a kludge. And gopher, like HTTP was essentially a way of presenting files without requiring an authentication layer if you didn't want one. Hmm. Okay. And yeah, there's some fun to gopher, but but we're not gonna get into get into that story today. But when people my age or older get pedantic about the difference between the internet and the World Wide Web. This is the difference: the <laughs> internet is the network that carries all of this stuff. The World Wide Web is a set of conventions specifically around HTTP, HTTPS mm-hmm. that runs on the internet.
1: So yeah, you, hear, you hear that, you damn kids, get a straight. Yeah.
2: But at this point, where we're at in history, at about ninety three ninety four, there isn't a World Wide Web. Like People aren't talking about the World Wide Web, or they're just starting to talk about the World Wide Web.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: It isn't really a thing yet. We'll talk a little bit uh, about the set of conventions that brought us to, to the World Wide Web. But first, we're going to talk a little bit about Mosaic and Netscape. Mark Andressing, uh left the NCSA in 1994, and he was the lead of the, of the team that developed Mosaic. He joined with James Clark, one of the founders of Silicon Graphics, which were... The guys that made basically higher performance, what we call microcomputers, mm. about PC size Unix machines that do lots of calculations. If you're a fan of Babylon 5, the first big scene from the pilot of, of like ho- over 100 uh, spaceships kind of coming in and all of that stuff, all of that was rendered on SGI, Silicon Graphics uh, huh. workstations. So they were at one point very important. So they founded Mosaic Communications Corporation, which later became Netscape Communication Corporation. This is where Netscape Navigator started. And it was originally sold as boxed software. It was not a free download thing. Okay. This is before Internet Explorer came on your PC. Yeah. Now it came Internet Explorer came relatively quickly thereafter as you know Microsoft's very helpful included tool to let you download Netscape.
1: Yep. And nowadays it lets you download a Firefox Chrome oh. or Opera. Is Opera, is that pay to use now or is that free? Opera went
2: to free to use relatively recently. And I've actually been using it on my kind of my main system at home for a while. And I got to say that I have liked it a fair bit.
1: Interesting. I'll to look into it because, yeah, I used it way back in the day.
2: Yeah. It gave me maybe a few too many options. And I've gotten myself in a little bit of a quagmire with different workspaces. (laughs) <laughs> that I have to kind of consolidate now, but mm-hmm. that's not its fault, that's mine. Yeah. So it's hard to overstate how much influence Netscape and Andressen had on the underlying technologies of how we use HTTP. The cookie was something that was added by Netscape in an oh, effort okay. to solve a session problem that they had with some of the very first online shopping carts. Hmm, Interesting. And and as we talked about in the SSL episode, they were where SSL started. They're also where JavaScript
1: started. Really? Okay.
2: Yes. And remember, Java and JavaScript, two completely different sets of characters. (laughs) So, like, really important foundational stuff. If you get underneath the surface, you start scratching the paint off. In a lot of cases, you see stuff that originated with a whole set of Netscape innovation. Just like when Mm. you start scratching anything Apple's done, you start seeing stuff from Next. Yeah. So now we have a web browser and a web server. How do people find websites? The standard for the universal resource locator, the URL, already existed. It was defined by RFC 1738 by, what's his name? Tim Berners-Lee. Same guy who did the first web server, because he had a plan. <laughs> <laughs> in 1990, following some earlier papers about how how a global internet might function and manage information, he published a formal paper with the help of Robert Caligu C A I L L I A U. I'm I should have had the phonetic on here, but I I didn't. On a paper called World Wide Web in a Subsequent interview, Tim Berners-Lee said that on the one hand, there was a group working on a common on problem of common formats for documents for sharing academic stuff because CERN. And on the other, there were people looking for how to organize all of the information that they wanted on this pretty new, but not like brand new Internet now. So for the document side, they've been using SGML, Standard Generalized Markup Language,
3: Mm, um,
2: to format their documents in a way that kind of didn't care the size of the page you're on this is one of the ways that it's very different from postscript and mm-hmm. all of the stuff that adobe did not too far in in the future from what we're talking about now right Is maybe not good enough for for printing hundreds or you know spending millions on printing textbooks and stuff but it's very good for reading it now depending on without worrying about what size monitor you have
3: mm-hmm. yeah.
2: So. Tim Berners-Lee's breakthrough idea was to marry the two solutions of those two problems by using a markup language based on SGML and built clients that specifically re- rendered that, which is where Hypertext Transfer Protocol and Hypertext Markup Language, HTTP and HTML, mm-hmm. have their chocolate and peanut butter moment. So it wasn't that either side initiated the other. It was that they... Both were kind of converging on the same idea and then they just built stuff based on the work that they had already done that let those things marry together reasonably well. Oh, okay. Nice. Yeah. So Tim Berners-Lee was knighted by Queen Victoria in 2004 for services to the global development of the internet, which is pretty cool.
1: (laughs) That's pretty awesome. Yeah. Yeah, I did not know that.
2: I don't know if he's white knighting, but if he is, he's the first one. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So... Let's talk a little bit more about that server, that Robert McCool character. Let's maybe get into some of the mystery. I don't know. I'm trying to make another play <laughs> off of McCool, but I got it's not going anywhere. So in, a, so in mid '94, about the same time that Anderson Lee left the NCSA, McCool left and started a little another little thing that you might have heard of, the Apache
1: project. Yeah, I heard about them. once. <laughs> choice?
2: <laughs> yes. So their first software of a pretty wide portfolio of different efforts that they either have initiated or have custody of. The first thing was the Apache web server, which was started from the point of the NCSA code, but there's been a lot of continual revisioning and, and refactor. This is one of those trivia things that either people who are listening are, of course I've heard that, and, and, and the other half of the folks will be like, oh, that's where it comes from. Apache got its name, from basically a contraction of Apache web server, Apache web server.
1: (laughs) I actually never heard that. That's great.
2: They tell the story a bunch of different ways, but that's a pretty consistent one. Yeah. yeah. (laughs) So I think this is where it started. And then they alibi it back to the Native American story that they use. And I mean, Mm -hmm. I, this isn't one of those Cleveland Indians or Washington football team situations from a cultural appropriation point of view or, or, mm-hmm. or, or a derogatory point of view. But the Apache web server is still a major web server on the internet today. It's still mm-hmm. the dominant one, but only by a couple of percentage points. It's about just a hair more than a third of all the servers on the internet based on the Netcraft surveys are Apache. Hmm.
1: Really? I would have um, thought Nginx had taken over my now.
2: NGINX ha- is basically another third, and it's it's like really close now.
1: Mm, okay. And
2: then the other third is Microsoft's IIS web server. Okay. Well, there's some stuff that's integrated. There are a number of applications that are kind of integrated directly with the IIS, and you can understand why they made the engineering decision if they were going to do take that development platform.
1: Oh, yeah. I can understand it. I just hate
2: <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. I'm not a big fan, but I can tell you that integration of things like SAML and directory authentication and stuff like that is smoother in IIS because it's so close. It's so much more integrated with an operating system that deals with that stuff kind of natively. So like there are, there are legit reasons to make that decision. Even if I find it frustrating. I mean, you run Apache web servers for years and then somebody says, Hey, can you do this thing with IIS? And it's like, menus why can't i just copy the config oh right registry
1: <laughs> yeah that was my yeah my issue with trying to use is and I, i've done like a few things like um wss hooks into it so there's uh, certificate authorities and stuff like that but yeah like just all the menu options and stuff and i was like i just want to yeah. like throw the files where i need them to be
2: yeah well it's also like the a lot of those of us who, who've worked in the unix world for a fair bit have a lot of like pretty good techniques for versioning our config files and being able to fall back really fast. And when yeah. you're dealing with a GUI, it can be really hard to undo all of the things that you changed since last time and do it quickly.
1: Exactly. Files making... Like .backup, yeah. .backup, 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 .backup.
2: Yes, classic like version control. But also, like I've definitely had a problem with various Windows things where I do something in my development environment, and I wanna take exactly what I did and copy it over. And in a menu system that doesn't allow you to export that in any reasonable way, it Mm. can be much more difficult to get consistency out of it.
1: Yeah, you'd think by now they would have some sort of XML export import function.
2: There are techniques for exporting registry stuff. And I'll admit (laughs) that I don't do a lot of IIS work. I, I try to avoid it, but there are folks that are actually pretty darn good at this kind of thing. I'm not going to take anything away from them. I just I think that there are some things that are strictly better about doing things that way. Even if you were to make the config json or yaml or something like that and mm-hmm. then give a GUI interface to that, it would still be strictly better than this the opaque registry mechanism. But, you know, yeah. we're, we're we're way off topic. <laughs> Back to the internet. So, nginx was developed specifically to be faster and less resource intensive than Apache. Both Apache and NGINX have reverse proxy load balancing times function. I think that the NGINX stuff might be more robust at this point.
1: Yeah, I've actually, I built a reverse proxy load balancer, (laughs) I think around last year, and getting it to work with a lot of my internal applications was kind of a pain for some of the stuff especially like if there was any like cgi stuff or like uh mm-hmm. you know having to you know, tweak configs for the base urls and all that stuff whereas i'm rebuilding it with nginx and so far it's like literally just like plug and play for a lot of the stuff
2: it just works it's almost like oh. apple made it.
1: apple didn't yep. make it
2: but one of the things apache allows you to have some more granular control of files in the directory nginx Basically, just files just follows the operating system mm-hmm. permissions. So there's some things that that are that are some capability differences between the two. And the other thing that is kind of that is easy to forget is that Nginx, when it's being used as a reverse proxy, might be hiding Apache or something else web servers behind it. Yeah, yeah. So like these these survey numbers have some. Flux fluidity to them.
1: Yeah, like for an example, actually, my Apache reverse proxy was hiding an Nginx behind it.
2: Right. So maybe that's a wash. Maybe there's some differences. The numbers are close enough. We're not swearing to them. Besides, they're not our numbers. They're Netcraft's numbers. Anyway. <laughs> so I was saying that that the Apache project has a lot of other projects. Well, things like the Apache projects Cassandra, Spark, and Kafka. They were the starting point for a lot of the. Big data applications that proliferate the internet at this point. Cassandra was the same kind of document DB that MongoDB is. And mm, okay. MongoDB Dynamo DB in AWS is just basically Amazon's version of MongoDB. Mm-hmm. And Cassandra, I believe it was Cassandra, was the was the back end for Facebook for a really long time. I don't know if they've transitioned, but spark is some job control. Kafka is a mechanism. If you're familiar with elastic stuff of, I believe Kafka does the translation of records that come in, into the. JSON document format that a, that a document database would use. They also took up the uh, maintenance of the open office project after Oracle discontinued development. They contributed all of the IP to the Apache software foundation, the ASF. So like. Yes, LibreOffice is a branch, and frankly, that's the one that I use personally. But the OpenOffice IP that exists right now is all hosted by the Apache Software Foundation. As uh-huh. like, just to talk about the that Robert McCool started something big and actually really important to the underlying technology that we use on the internet and and the things that we use every day. I mean, if you can. Make some pretty capable stuff by just using the open source stuff that the Apache Foundation has made available to you. Even if you don't want to, you don't have the ability to spend up and spin up on the things that Elastic sells, and Elastic Mm -hmm. does a good job. But you have alternatives. You have open source alternatives. What I'm
1: yeah, yeah, exactly.
2: And maybe Elastic would have never gotten there if those tools hadn't been there, and the need for something like Elastic hadn't become manifest because enough people got a chance to try and solve their problems with the open source solutions to start with.
1: Yeah. I mean, that. this seems to be the general flow of things is like, <laughs> the open source product comes out, everyone loves it. And it's so widely used that eventually people realize like, well, we can make money just forking this over and then like, you know, paying for subscription maintenance and stuff like that.
2: Well, and making it's, it better. I mean, it, yeah. it's, this isn't the similar <laughs> o- Elastic, When I mean, we talk about Elastic, but Splunk is essentially a set of similar uh, using similar technology. and the really important parts about both of those things is managing a lot of the backend stuff. Yeah, you can mm-hmm. roll your own. even if the code was identical for, for rolling the underlying databases. It's all the management of creating indexes, creating shards, managing all the disk space and everything like that. You pay for the software that manages that for you, so that you don't have all of that extra O load, operations and maintenance load.
1: Like, yeah, I mean it was it's it's equivalent to ESXi and vSphere. Like mm-hmm. ES, ESXi was built off of KVM. Was it was a KVM, I think it was KVM, right? Um,
2: was it Xen or KVM? I don't.
1: Remember. Oh, I think I think it was Xen. But yeah, like like v, vSphere is how you manage everything because like you could do it from the command line. It's just horrible.
2: Right, and anybody who's built a relatively large Linux, Unix infrastructure, like you can spend your whole life making little shell scripts to do all the work. Mm-hmm. But like in the case where somebody's already done all of that for you or done a lot of that for you, why reinvent the wheel? Go on to newer and cooler problems.
3: Yeah, yeah exactly.
2: Anyway, so those are the stuff. Let's talk about the protocol itself. HTTP it was meant to serve static documents. and Starts with a basic header. You can have a get, a put, a post, a head, or connect. Connect, you're not going to see a ton of unless you're running a proxy. That's basically a, hey, I'm facilitating a connection through HTTP. It's a proxy kind of stuff. So we'll go past those. Most of the stuff you're going to see is a get, but, and put is relatively rare, although it's been making a little bit of, of a comeback. Get and put are operators that have the s- same name as operators in FTP.
1: Mm-hmm. I don't think
2: that's a coincidence. I think that they they said, well, FTP does this. Let's start from there and start working, from, uh, working that out.
1: Um, right, that makes sense.
2: And there's also post. And post is kind of the most interesting one, especially nowadays, from my opinion, because mm-hmm. you'll have the resource, but in the body of the, after the header, in the body, you'll have, some set of requests of parameters to have the server handle a bunch of user provided data
3: mm-hmm.
2: and res- and respond with that. Nowadays, that's usually JSON from most of the analysis stuff I've done of all of the stuff that I've done security for. I don't know that there's a lot of difference in there, but you could easily see someone using YAML instead. So get and post are the ones that you're going to see the most nowadays. You'll see some head sometime, sometimes. Usually, I believe that that's mostly checking to see if a document has been refreshed. Mm, okay. So in that top header, you're going to have, you know, get, and then you're going to have a resource, which is going to be the URI, the basically the URI of things, which is going to have the, so everything after the host name.
3: Mm-hmm
2: is going to be the resource of the request and then that line is going to end with the http version. This is which nowadays is going to be usually one or one one. Actually you should see one one because mm-hmm. one oh has not been in explicit use for a long time. But two exists it's just not used for a ton right now. At least hmm. I haven't had to do a lot of security related specifically to two. And we may end up talking about two later on. We're talking about like the foundational, this is the stuff that you see, this is the stuff you you kind of need to understand. Right. So there's going to be, after the fir- that top line, there's usually, there's going to be a few different things. And the common ones that you're going to see that you kind of want to glance at are things like host, which is going to have the host name of the site that you're requesting. Mm-hmm. Now, what that means is that you're going to have one server on one IP, one port that has multiple hosts, These are if you're configuring an Apache or an Nginx web server, virtual servers. And yep. it knows which virtual server you want to go to based on the host name in the header. Mm-hmm. Yep. So that's got, it's not just, if you're doing this like raw, it's not just that you got the right IP. You have to have the host header if you're going to go to the right site. And mm-hmm. HTTPS didn't have that capability until I believe TLS 1 or 1.1, where they introduced SNI headers, the server name indicator. Header, which essentially is the host header, but outside of the encapsulation of the mm, encryption. Okay,
1: that makes sense.
2: <laughs> because you have to remember, everything that we're talking about right now is inside the encryption of HTTPS. Mm-hmm. Uh, you're going to see authentication. Most of the time, authentication is basic, which will usually pass a straight plaintext password. So it's not good if you, <laughs> if, if if there's possible observation on on that network. You're going to have accept encoding which allows for the actually compression of the documents uh, mm-hmm. using compressor gzip usually or none at all you have accept language so in the header if the site supports multiple languages it can actually make that decision based on something that's specified from a client side right and then also this is a place where they've implemented mime types where you would have maybe a difference between text and text html and what's called octet stream, which allows you to download binary, which is not limited by the characters that are permitted by HTTP. Hmm. Without that, you can't download, you know, executables. Right. Yeah. Kind of important. You're also going to have the user agent,
3: mm-hmm.
2: which can be interesting to look into. And sometimes an, a good indicator of botnet type activity. If you're looking at it in, in your, like your own web server logs can be, yeah. might not be. It's, it's also a classic.
1: It's yeah. a, it's like a classic, I think, like lesson one to lesson two on a lot of hacking websites, like to do like CTF things or like when they teach you is like go to this website, you know, use burp or something to intercept the packet and change your user agent because like their website will only accept mm-hmm. you know requests from a certain uh user agent or like a certain version. So you just have to go in and modify it and then you get in. Yeah. But well, it's usually I, like level one.
2: Yeah. Well, at this point, because we have mobile devices and we have regular computers, even though those regular computers tend to all say that they're Mozilla of some version. Uh, <laughs> yeah. The mobile website can make that determination based on the user agent. And you may get mm-hmm. different functionality and have access to different parts of the API based on your user agent decla- declaration.
1: Yeah.
2: I mean that's possible. I mm-hmm. can't say that I've personally experienced that, but I could totally see it.
1: Oh yeah, yeah, I'm um, sure it's something something.
2: And, and then the last two are referrer and cookie. If mm-hmm. you have a link from somewhere else, that referrer can be in there. At the time of this recording, log4j is not that far in the past. One of the places that log4j's exploit string was actually in the referrer tag. Yeah. And then the cookie, uh, cookie tag, which lets the client send back the cookie for whatever they're doing. Now, here's the thing there's no session layer built into. HTTP, not according to the OSI model. Mm. The session layer, you have your transport layer, you have the session layer. Authentication and all your transit and resumption and stuff happens at that layer. Session control, as it exists in HTTP, is all using cookies to do so, which is Mm -hmm. up in the application layer. Now, I personally think this is one of the reasons that we end up with a lot of problems with session control and cookie thievery and, and stuff like that in HTTP. It's also part of what enables things like super cookies and and tracking cookies and that kind of thing. Right, yeah. But the great thing about it from our point of view and security folks is that every request or every connection is a different request. Mm-hmm. So when you look at your proxy logs, when you look at your web filter log, when you look at your web server logs, you're seeing every request that was made. Yeah. It was not, hey, we made a connection and this is the first request we made. And then we made 50 others. You're seeing every single one. Yep. And that's from a forensic point of view when when you and I, and hopefully a, a good chunk of our listeners are doing security operations and they're they're doing an investigation. They get to see everything that that user did or that, that host did.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: We're not left in the
1: dark. And on top of... Just the security aspect, it's great for troubleshooting as well.
2: Well, there isn't a ton of difference between
1: yeah, 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 true, and true. And
2: troubleshooting sometimes. <laughs> so, did you check your logs? We have logs. Do, do you want to? Yeah. Oh, the number of times as a security guy is like, oh, your security thing's breaking this. And I'm like, I don't think it is. What do your logs say? We didn't yeah. check our logs. We have logs. Like, oh my God. <laughs>
1: I remember a slight tangent, but one of my first jobs out of like getting my associate's degree was working for a managed service provider. Mm-hmm. And funny enough, there was a guy in one of my classes who complained nonstop about us having used Google to like find answers for certain things. Mm-hmm. And he was like, like well, why am I paying for this class? Like you know when I, I could just go home and teach myself Google, I got a call from his company. Um, he was like like a new hire working on the firewall and he couldn't figure out an issue. And I was like, well, like, what did the logs say? He just took the log, had to direct him to where the logs are. So use Google to figure that out. And then just Googled his, you know, his error message. And I was like, it's this, and I was, I was just like, see, well, like, so he didn't even
2: push- learn the most important lesson, which is that Google. Yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, I believe that there's that, that there are memes out there of like, what I think I do, what people think I do, I was like yeah, what I really yeah, yeah, do, do, but It should be said that learning how to ask search engines, good questions is a very important skill.
1: Oh yeah, yeah. Um, And then an extra one on top of that, that I used to teach my students when I was teaching was, you know, like, yeah, you can Google the error. You're going to get like 30 links to Stack Overflow with 30 different ways to like fix it. And you you just need to know 29 of these ways are going to like completely destroy your
0: environment.
2: Yeah, well, I mean, that's the other thing is the more you have a good basis, the more you can take those Google results and put them into context and apply them to your problem and throw yeah. away the ones that are going to break your environment. Yeah, um, yeah, exactly. But I don't, this is not really true anymore, but back when I was doing a lot of routing switching and Cisco firewall stuff, one of the best ways I found of finding stuff on Cisco's site was to... Go to Google and say sitecoldcisco.com and then ask my question.
1: <laughs> when So when, when I started my associate's degree way back in the before times, I never paid for a single textbook. I just <laughs> used Google to, you know, like extension uh, PDF and stuff like that and literally downloaded everything. In fact, I had one class that was Active Directory and the teacher was like, well, even if you download the book, you can't get access to the resources. And I actually used Google to not only find the PDF with the book, but find a teacher who had an open FTP (laughs) site, which had the ISO for like the the disc that comes with the book and just pulled it all down and ran it.
2: Excellent. Oh, well, you may not be able to find it on Google, but I
1: can. I'm, I'm not paying $150 for this freaking textbook.
2: So I spoiled the story a little bit about cookies. Netscape added cookies to HTTP when they were trying to resolve some technical problems coming from an MCI engagement for creating an online shopping cart. Programmer mm. Lou Montulli applied the idea of a magic cookie, which is kind of sort of a nonce value to make sure <clears throat> that, that session stuff is in is in order when you're doing transactions of any kind to the HTTP like, control session. Oh, okay. um, and that's where cookies came from. But it's obviously not where they stopped.
3: Um, yeah. yeah.
2: So I jumped ahead in my outline a little bit. So the last chunk that we're going to talk about, about like the basics of HTTP are the response codes. 100 mm. responses are informational. And frankly, you're probably not going to see very many of those. Right. 200s, the two that you're going to see most often are 200 okay. And mm. 206 partial content, which is basically how HTTP lets you download something over multiple requests Hmm, Okay, and you sometimes see that it's not real often but i will tell you that when you do see it it will massively skew your logs because you'll have one source that does a bunch of 206s in order Mm -hmm. to download bunch of chunks of things and it makes if you just take your logs and look for everything that starts with a two That's like between 200 and 300 you'll you'll get the set of, of ips that are making requests that do a lot of continuation skewing your entire results i've had oh, really? that happen to me oh yeah it's oh, okay yeah it's pretty funny that's when i figured out what 206 was i was like
3: oh
2: yeah i didn't even like, know what you could hell? do resumption in http <laughs> 300s are redirection 301 moved permanently, 302 was found and I think it changed to moved. Maybe it was the other way around. My, my notes are unclear. Um, 303, see other, it's a response to redirect. And then 304 mm-hmm. is not modified. So you can make a request for a resource mm-hmm. and provide like, I think it's a hash value or ch- sorry, it's a checksum value and say, hey, have you changed it? Or uh, maybe it's a time date stamp, but it's like, have you changed it? And instead of responding with the entire document, the web server can say, No, I haven't changed it yet.
1: Oh, really? That's beneficial.
2: Yeah, that was built to the protocol from the beginning because bandwidth was much more expensive back then. Yeah, yeah. 400s are client errors, bad request, unauthorized, forbidden, not found, like you asked uh-huh. for something that wasn't there. That's the four, classic 404. Yep. And then
1: a package on the head of the cat.
2: Yes. The 500s are server errors, internal server error. 500 is internal server error. I think 501 is bad gateway. 503 is service unavailable. 500s are the server is having a problem. 400s are you you did something wrong asking for something.
1: Yep. And I've seen a lot of 500s. Haven't we all?
2: Well, we've also seen a lot of the 400s. (laughs) Especially if if, if, if you made a little bit of a hobby of messing with API requests and stuff. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So... Again, this all started with the assumption that everything that was being provided was static. Like here's a file, but as I think everybody has dealt with at this point, if you go to Amazon and I go to Amazon, we're gonna see same structure, much different product recommended. Well, maybe not much different, but different product recommendations. Yeah, And that's because Amazon is taking an input. Usually that input is a cookie in, in that particular case and going into its database, seeing what it wants to give to you, and then dynamically generating the content that that you actually see. Mm
3: -hmm.
2: Now, how do we get from static to this kind of dynamic everywhere thing? Well, it was a long road, but we started with the common gateway interface, CGI. It would originally take an external program that would take arguments from your URI and run something. This is kind of more or less like we get simple API queries. If you have mm-hmm. your URI of you, know, of you know app slash API slash search question mark. Well, actually in Google's case, it's either it's search question mark or just straight off the off the slash. Question mark says, I'm gonna start giving you key value pair arguments. You know, this parameter, that parameter, this parameter, that parameter, or this parameter equals whatever. And parses those out into a bunch of key value pairs, a hash if you've done any programming or well, if you've done any Perl programming, dictionary, if you've done Python programming um, (laughs) or an associated array, if you've read a computer science book and would use that to run a program like a C program to generate HTML, to give back to the client. Well in practice very quickly there was a module in apache mod cgi which would invoke those scripts for you rather than you having to make like an external program mm-hmm. you could tell it to execute you know this perl script using this perl environment kind of thing right a lot of the early cgi was really done in perl because this was kind of perl's heyday as the swiss army chainsaw of text processing languages but I've seen it done in Unix shell scripts. I did see it one time, although this was an internal thing and using DOS batch files, which was crazy, but yeah. I've seen it. So now you're giving the ability to cause code execution on the web server. This is where web attacks really, really start. Before this, the most you'd have were typically things like directory traversal attacks, which are still a thing today Mm-hmm. You where you'd say, oh, well, Apache always puts its website in var www or var http slash, and then there's the website. So if I want to get, if I want to download the password file from there, if it's in this typical place, it's dot dot slash dot dot slash, Etsy slash p a s w w d p a s s w d right.
1: Yeah. I mean, this is actually how I got a lot of those books I was talking about and to mm-hmm. professor websites is finding one. And yeah, just like doing the simple like data slash dot dot slash to just move up, see how far I could go and see what was there.
2: Yeah. And this was in an era before secure configuration was well understood. And in the case of those like Etsy password stuff, this is before shadow passwords were a thing. Mm. So like the real hashes were in those password files. If you were running an insecure configuration and unfortunately the default configurations a lot of times were not particularly secure. Yeah. And they ran in a lot of cases because it was easy as root. Yep. And for folks that haven't done a lot of Unix system administration, root typically is, or administrative level privileges are required to opening a, open a listening socket. So nowadays, This is usually happening behind the scenes, but it'll start a service as root and then change the user that owns the process to whatever it's supposed to be using so that it can open up the sockets and sometimes get access to resources that it only needs on startup. Right, yeah. But again, this was not a a well hoed road in this, you know, 90s, early 2000s era. You had a lot of poorly configured web servers or ones that you just spun up. Nowadays, even if you're not a really experienced Unix person and you start up a web server from any of the major distributions, it's not going to leave you hanging out there. You still get, have to make some of your own mistakes to create some dangerous things. Not that you can't, but you know, you you have to do it yourself.
3: Yeah, um, yeah, it exactly.
2: It doesn't come pre-hacked for your convenience. So there were a bunch of different vulnerabilities that came out of the CGI bin problem. But I'm going to talk about one of them because it's fairly illustrative. Some of these problems, these, CGI, these vulnerable CGI scripts actually came with the web server as like example oh. code. Both IIS and Apache had problems with this at various points in time. So I'm going to talk about PHF just because it kind of shows exactly what's what could happen. So it was reported in 1996 and is currently listed as CVE-1999-0067. And it's a remote code execution vulnerability that affects uh, CGI script included in the NCSA HTTPD, HTTP daemon version 1.5. The PHF script would allow execution of local shell commands by first sanitizing inputs and then passing them to escape shell CMD, the escape shell CMD function. By passing a set of arguments with HTTP encoded characters, an attacker could execute the command and a command they wanted on the web server as the web server's owner user, a user ID. And if that was root, then execute as root and then output whatever the output was to the HTTP to the client. So it was basically a straight web shell. Really? Yeah. And this, the script was included as part of the web server. You had to remove it or turn it off. So it came pre-hacked for your convenience. It allowed for remote code execution at the user privilege of the service. And at this point in time, it was more common than you'd think, not, not just not unheard of, but pretty common that that was running as a fairly privileged user. So more advanced admins at the time would use things like Chroot to root jail those things into specific, so that the service only had access, they had root level privileges, but only access to the directories they were supposed to have. Right, yeah or they do the, the the change the owner of a process ID. But again, this was not standard configuration. You had to work at it.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: So that was a CGI script that allowed for execution, not just directory traversal, but the execution of code. And this is where dynamic websites started. Right. When, in the next HTTP episode, we're gonna start talking about frameworks for specific dynamic content and kind of where that started. Because we already did an episode on Flash, Flash was actually a fairly important part about sets of vulnerabilities that came in via HTTP, but I'll basically refer you to, to that episode instead of going over it again. Right. Yeah. So when was you when did you set up your first web server?
1: I can't remember my first web server. I do remember though when I first started a degree in graphic design, that was my first foray into writing websites. Mm-hmm. And that was that was back in that heyday of like WYSIWYG stuff, what you see is what you yeah. get software. But that was also right around when I started learning it was the the push for cascading style sheets, CSS. Yeah. And instead of instead of teaching us CSS because that was marketable and what we needed to learn, our professor was like, Well, I'm gonna teach you HTML, like because you need to know the foundation before you move on. And spent, I think, three quarters of the semester teaching us. HTML, and then was like, all right, moving on to CSS, it reinvents like all this crap. And we were like, why did you waste all of our time?
2: Yeah. I learned to write very, you know, fairly simple HTML, but mm-hmm. HTML with some stuff, maybe some dynamic content and stuff way back in the day. And I just didn't really have to do very much to it. I might have to edit something here and there, but I didn't really have to. I, ne- I hadn't designed a website yeah. in 15 years at least before I wrote the website for the podcast <laughs> and I had to learn cascading style sheets from the from the start which is why depending on when you see this how why the file might look a little janky if you go and examine it I am at this moment planning on getting a professional to to maybe polish some of this stuff up because I just I got about as far as I could With the time I had allotted, and at this point, I don't know that I can dedicate a ton of time to become an expert at something that is not part of my day job.
1: (laughs) Yeah, that's I created a look for my reverse proxy. The idea was to have a portal to log in for all my users, and then they could access the resources based on whatever group I mapped them to in AD. I just found a template for the website, pulled it down, stripped it of like 90% of its content because I just didn't need it and then just plugged in my own images into it's like the iframes and stuff like that to like go through the different missions. And like, that that was it. Like that was my foray into like running a website was basically just taking free content and gutting the hell out of it.
2: Well, I, there are some tricks in the way because the service as anybody who who investigates will will figure out very quickly is running as a serverless website through AWS. I did it that way for a few reasons, not the least of which is there just isn't very much to hack. Right. Because yeah. when you start doing a computer security focused podcast, assume people are going to mess with you.
1: Yeah, yeah, exactly.
2: <laughs> but I I wrote the JavaScript and the Python that is behind the API as it exists. Will not go into where where we're at right now versus where I hope to be in the very in the in the near future, depending on uh, <laughs> but. I, I can't swear that I, that it won't go back to the slightly janky way that I, that that I got minimum functional, but yeah. cascading style sheets and the display system, the display tag system, let me do some things that I have occasionally put into the HTML that I have written. And you'll notice that when you mouse between the about page and the Episode listing, it doesn't cause the, the page to reload because I did some tricksy stuff with the display and some JavaScript.
1: Yeah, that's probably my second favorite thing of like it's modern websites, tricksy,
2: but it's slightly tricksy.
1: My primary favorite thing with cascading style sheets and everything is the fact that websites scale to your monitor now. Yeah. And it drives me freaking insane when I go to a website that does not have that. Especially like, you know, when it just groups all the text, the tiny little things, and I'm like, what is this? A website for ants?
2: Yeah, I'm reasonably happy about how all of that works in the in the in the current website, but it's definitely not the pro way to do it—the way that I've done it. But all of my testing shows that it's at least still readable, so <laughs> you'll at least continue talking to me because I I, I need that. I, I I can't do every episode myself.
1: <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly.
2: So that's HTTP part one: the weird wide web
0: recording can be found at www.hackingthegibson.online. Follow Hack the Gibbs 1 on Twitter to get notified of new recordings. Support the continued observation of Hacking the Gibson on Patreon.